Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Today we're doing an AMA, Ask Us Anything. Um, AUA, I suppose. It's been a while since we've done one of these, and we have a lot of great comments, uh, some interesting comments. So let's go ahead and get started. First question. Uh, Please, can you discuss how to resolve or avoid sensitivity issues in the penis caused by low-dose dutasteride use? So a bit to unpack there. Yeah, um, loaded question, as a lot of the questions are. So there's multiple layers behind this. The first layer is, uh, you know, how long has the sensitivity issue gone on? Did it start around the same time that you started dutasteride? What is low-dose dutasteride? Does that mean 0.5 every single day? Because in a lot of studies, they use 2.5 every day. Yeah, 0.5 is the only approved dose of dutasteride. You're not going to get a capsule that has more or less than that in it unless it's compounded. Um, and if and it's compounded, it's probably not going to be effective. It's, yeah. it's probably not going to move your DHT at all. So if you're using a compounded low-dose dutasteride, 0.1 mgs, um, you're probably just wasting your money there. Um, but I guess for the person who has, let's say they've started on dutasteride and they're noticing this, um, blood work, I think we're yep. basically a broken record here at this point. Let's see. Low you know, androgen pool. What's going on? Do you have low testosterone? Mm -hmm. Are you, were you, you know, pre-diabetic when you were starting and, and now yep. you've progressed to worse insulin resistance? It's kind of damaging those little nerves there. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of potential things you could find just by getting a good solid lab panel. Yeah. Or you could take a trial and discontinue the dutasteride and see is it cause and effect. Yeah, um, and to answer the other question that we brought up, what we consider low-dose dutasteride once a week, maybe twice a week, although honestly I consider that medium-dose dutasteride for those that are taking it for non-prostate cancer reasons or non-PMDD reasons. Because a lot of the clinical literature, like you said, 0.5 a day, but um, the next most common dose is 2.5 milligrams a day, which uh, we don't uh, you know, uh, there is potentially some clinical utility, but as you'll see later, um, eh, we're, we're generally not a fan of that dose just because it's going to be around for so long. The other thing to keep in mind here is total androgen pool. Yes, this could be just as simple as low testosterone or poor androgen receptor sensitivity. But again, with dutasteride, if it is working a lot in the pubic skin, like the penile skin, unlike finasteride, it is much stronger in other tissues. So it's actually the weakest in penile skin. So if it's causing side effects from suboptimal androgen receptor activation in penile skin, it is doing the same in every other tissue in the body. So get that checked out. Yeah, for sure. And that's not the same for finasteride. Again, <laughs> not to beat a dead horse, finasteride, you can definitely see poor sensitivity in penile and scrotal skin, pubic skin as well, um, yeah. whether and it's males or females. We'll link to our podcast where we, we've done several podcasts on this at this point. Um, for those that are interested, probably a good hour on the nuances of all things hair loss and 5-alpha reductase mm -hmm. and DHD. And for those not interested, then uh, we'll stop talking about it mostly today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, we have uh, Neil44, who says, I'm 67, 6 foot, 188 pounds, probably 18-ish body, I assume body fat percentage. Exercise and diet good. Is there a safe, good med or supplement to lose that last bit of body fat? Maybe wishful thinking. The first thing that jumps out to me here is that probably 18-ish percent body fat. Um, you really need to get a, a DEXA to see what your starting point is. You know, if this individual is already at you know, sub 15% body fat, they probably 
don't necessarily need to lose body fat unless it's yep. for, uh, you know, a, a vanity purpose or because they feel better, look better at a certain body fat percentage and they want to do that. Um, so that's your first step. But any yep. magical meds or supplements out there? Uh, no, unfortunately, there's no magical med or supplement. A lot of times these individuals are better off not going by the scale. You can go by the mirror, which I assume this person is also doing. I also assume that they're a male because 18% as a female is absolutely shredded. Um, but um, yeah, they're like, you know, we're not a proponent of everybody take GLP-1s or everybody take Contrave or everyone take Rowlcine or um, caffeine or whatever other the the latest, greatest homeopathic nutraceutical where you lose 30 pounds in 30 days. Um, yeah, great time to get a DEXA. And if this person um, has aesthetic goals and there's something specific that they want aesthetically, like let's say there's loose hanging skin on triceps or in the abdomen um, or in the neck, there's a lot of other topical creams, injections, um, which are more in like the aesthetics side of things that they can do. Um, but yeah, the first question is, why do you want to lose it? And what's the specific part that they want to improve aesthetically or for health reasons? Yeah, I think that's a good balanced approach. Uh, next we have, is it true that Natesto does not suppress HPTA? Does it provide the same subjective benefits as injectable, i.e. increased lean mass, fat loss, increased libido, etc.? cetera? Um, so this is referring to testosterone, and this is a two-part question. So mm -hmm. number one, does it not suppress the HPTA? Not near as much as any other form of testosterone. This is dose dependent. So you yeah. can you can get by with, you know, like let's say I have to use a FDA approved form of testosterone and I have to use it for one day for some reason in this hypothetical fantasy land. Uh, I would like to choose Natesto. And the last on that option would be something like a Avid which is, or Nibido, which are the same, mm -hmm. um, and then everything in between. So yeah, it's the, the least suppressive is how I would answer the first part of the question. Yeah, it's pretty minimally suppressive when it's dosed as prescribed in the package insert. So if you, instead of using your Natesto three times a day, you're using it every hour, you're probably still gonna suppress your HPTA. Yep. But if you're using it on label in the package insert three times a day, yep, probably going to suppress HPT a little bit, but not enough to be clinically important for most people. As far as the questions on efficacy, kind of. The cognitive benefits, including libido, um, it gives uh, great effect, very good efficacy. Um, the uh, There's not a whole lot of huge studies that specifically study lean body mass, but a lot of them do study metabolic health. It's probably not quite as good as some other forms if you're like, you know, there's not going to be a lot of enhanced bodybuilders that are using the testo as their test base, if that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. If, if you look at, um, think of it in terms of area under the curve or the total average exposure to testosterone, if you are spiking your level up from 200 to 800 nanogram per deciliter three times a day versus waking up and going to sleep with an 800 nanogram per deciliter testosterone level, mm -hmm. you're probably going to accrue a little bit more lean mass. Part of that's going to be fluid retention, but a little bit more lean mass with the longer acting injectable testosterone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good summary. The next question is regarding Victoza, which is lyroglutide, um, which is now off patent. They wonder if it is able to get this 
early GLP-1 medication. It's one of the first ones, very similar to exenatide, which is the very first one, for less than 200 or 300 a month. Um, I know that there's several companies that are going, Teva is perhaps Teva, one of them. Pfizer, hmm. um, and then there's one that started with an M, it slips my mind. Um, but there's gonna be, supposedly, the rumor is mm -hmm. three generics coming to market mid-2024. So like with all the other GLP ones, I suspect there will be supply chain issues there. Mm -hmm. um, I would love it if I was wrong and that there was enough for everyone who would benefit from it and understands the benefits and risks. Yeah, and again, uh, this is a once a day subcutaneous injection. It uh, works quite well when you have good adherence. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be a great option for a lot of individuals. The same commenter also asks about Rebelsis, which is oral semaglutide. And that, yes, that will also be a phenomenal option when off patent. Yeah, because well, there is a bit of a barrier there. Anytime you have an injectable medication, you know, some people are going to be quite hesitant to use that or there's going to be issues mm -hmm. with compliance. So having the oral form, yeah, it is going to be a good option for some people. You just have to keep in mind how it's going to affect the absorption of certain things. Like I know thyroid hormone specifically has been mentioned and studied with the oral semaglutides mm -hmm. and you know, you're getting more absorption. So you have to kind of look at the whole picture. You can't just have a, um, a Weight Watchers GLP-1 that doesn't know you're taking Armour Thyroid from your functional medicine doc. You have to kind of put all the pieces together and understand what the potential for harm is. Yeah, that's a good summary. Next question. Wait, so you guys prefer to use brand name drugs with patients or do you use a trusted compounding pharmacy? It's interesting because there are a lot of clinics out there that say, Oh no, we don't send prescriptions to your pharmacy. We use our trusted compounding pharmacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, I guess the secret is out. It's true. Uh, we told people about it. We do generally prefer to use um, not necessarily brand name drugs, but at least you know FDA approved drugs, generic drugs, mm -hmm. um, where we know the batch to batch you know reliability meets certain standards. You know, it's within eighty to one hundred twenty five percent total drug exposure area under the curve. Mm -hmm. Whereas we don't have that with compounded medications. Um, and there are some things you can only get compounded. And there are cases where people do need substantially lower doses of something than you can get in a you know, FDA approved formulation. Um, so I guess the answer is yes, but we also do have some trusted compounding pharmacies. Yes. Um, more compounding pharmacies than not we do not use. So we do only use a handful of compounding pharmacies, but for a completely different reason, candidly, than other clinics. Um, I don't know of any other clinics that just charge the patient what the price of the medication is at the pharmacy. So we don't have skin in the game. So we're not financially incentivized to send medications here, there, or everywhere, anywhere else. Whereas uh, any other clinic outside the conventional health system likely is. So think about that as you're choosing a healthcare provider as a hidden cost or fee. Just like if you go to Las Vegas, you have to think about like resort fees and excess taxes and fees. And there's like all these hidden costs. Wait, that's, I have to pay taxes on my gambling winnings? Yeah. Can I deduct my gambling losses? That's I'm not an accountant. This is not financial <laughs> advice. Uh, uh, none of this. And even though I am a doctor, this is not your individualized medical advice. And Mark Bell the other day was talking about you know, this and that, because he had his YouTube channel banned. And he oh, said something so like, that. you know, and I'm not a doctor, so this is a medical advice. And I thought about saying, well, I am a doctor, but this is not your medical advice. I think that's fair. Yeah, we can make that into the outro. <laughs> yeah. Maybe for the After Hours podcast. <laughs> Seems good. 
Um, but anyway, the kind of hyper extreme example that we used about compounding pharmacies is one of our patients that has uh, diabetes and no insurance and also um, is not in a position to buy, you know, uh, full priced or even couponed uh, GLP-1 of any sort, but also does not meet the income criteria um, for the assistance programs because, you know, Eli Lilly and um, Novo Nordisk, they have these assistance programs, which have also had patients use in the past. So if you're a Eli Lilly or Novo Nordisk fan, that's fantastic. We love you. We are, we're also a fan. We're always following the latest updates of whatever billion dollar uh, med that your companies are buying. But there is patients that fall in between. And um, the best thing that you can do to care for them is prescribe a compounded GLP-1, believe it or not. Yeah, there is a patient for which that is the best medication intervention. Next question. Um, they said, interesting points about androgen receptor sensitivity and CAG repeats. Thank you. I suspect I have some amount of androgen sensitivity or perhaps insensitivity as I have normal testosterone levels, but lots of low T symptoms, ED, low libido, muscle mass, and bone mass. Interesting. Um, so perhaps low estrogen as well. I've even had some genetic tests and they didn't find any polymorphisms of the AR gene and many other genes linked to um, Klinefelter's or Klinefelter syndrome. Yeah, so they say, when I asked if CAG repeat affects androgen sensitivity, they said it wasn't a factor, which makes me think they don't fully understand the causes of androgen sensitivity. Wondering where I can get this checked in the UK. Yeah, um, this individual, the healthcare providers that he sought out just did not understand androgen insensitivity yeah. syndrome uh, or the And to be receptor. fair, it's, it's probably not part of the standard workup if you're just an endocrinologist and someone comes to you and they're like, hey, uh, testosterone is normal, but they've got all these signs and symptoms. And you're thinking, hmm, does this person actually have you know, Klinefelter's or yep. there's a partial insensitivity there? Um, and they did those tests, which are appropriate. But I, do, I think that you're right, they're not a andrologist that this person saw. Yeah. So they don't understand the like androgen, maybe the CAG repeats and specifically something like Kennedy syndrome mm -hmm. or something that would be like a subclinical Kennedy syndrome. Um, there's a number of different you know, places that can do the CAG repeats. Um, there's a company called Athena Diagnostics. I'm not sure if they operate in the United Kingdom, um, but they do have the test available. Um, not sure how insurance and reimbursement works there, uh, but hopefully that helps and gives you some options. Mm -hmm. This individual also notes it's strange because sister has PCOS, so she's very sensitive to some androgens, or at least um, presumably if it's not the insulin resistant type, which this individual says uh, family history of type 2 diabetes, so perhaps it is the insulin resistant type. Um, but yeah, the statistics show you got your androgen receptor via the X chromosome from your mother, and your sister has a 50% chance of sharing that same X chromosome, but she also got an X chromosome from your father. So it's possible that she does have a very sensitive androgen receptor that's turned on more in PCOS, mosaicism, and she just got that from your father. Yeah, great points. Uh, comment on DHEA says, uh, this guy, so one of us presumably, is highly on all caps uninformed, there are different forms of DHEA. Some forms of DHEA increases testosterone in males over 30 because of diminished levels of test. 
Some forms of DHEA, such as prasterone, increases estrogen. 1-DHEA increases testosterone and is a strong androgen. Interesting. I, I think we can kind of stop there and dissect those. Yep. So 1-DHEA, we've talked about the kind of 7 keto DHEA that gets marketed as a, a fat yep. loss agent. Doesn't seem to do much of anything. It's not particularly effective. Uh, I've never prescribed it for anyone. Uh, the one DHEA uh, actually seems to be one andros androsterone, I believe is what yes. it was. It was a steroid prohormone, a, a designer steroid, if you will. Yep. So this and, is in the same category as Superdrol. Uh, it's an oral antibiotic. Yeah. And steroid. that's certainly not going to increase yeah. your testosterone. This, this is not the DHEA that you're buying. It will increase androgen signaling, but it won't increase the testosterone. Yep. Um, so and the as far as DHEA versus prasterone, which is just prescription DHEA, um, those are identical. If you're getting just DHEA over the counter yeah. here, for example, I think in Europe and maybe Canada, it's a prescription only medication. Um, it's going to be the same thing. And it, in tissue, it may still increase net testosterone there or net estrogen there in the tissue in terms of the signaling. Mm -hmm. But as far as what you see in, in the serum and the blood work, you really don't see an increase in total testosterone for men. Um, you can see an increase in free testosterone for women. Yeah. Um, the, the correct terminology here is DHEA is not a testosterone booster. Now, if you have uh, hypoadrenalism, if you're not producing DHEA well, and by the way, how you know that is DHEA sulfate. Um, about 80% of DHEA sulfate, plus or minus in a lot of individuals, um, that tells you more about adrenal production of DHEA, whereas actual serum DHEA is more highly variable and also slightly more of it comes from the gonads. So check a DHEA sulfate. If that's very low, then DHEA is a very um, potentially good addition. And occasionally I do put in a little seven keto DHEA. With, for people that have very low DHEAs, DHEA sulfates, I have a few patients that came in with DHEA sulfates of less than 10 that are not on chronic steroids. By steroids, I mean uh, glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids are a combination of the two. Yeah. Because um, those uh, are what can, is going to suppress cortisol and DHEA the most. Yeah, you see those every once in a while. So if someone, if you've gone and got your labs checked and you saw that your DHEA was extremely low yep. and it doesn't make sense, double check to make sure you weren't on like a steroid dose pack going into those labs because that could very well explain it. Yep. Um, I think that mostly explains the question unless there's something particularly funny. Uh, about No more than four to six months at a time. Yeah. The, you need to cycle your... Is that one DHEA? I or think they're talking about one DHEA. Prasterone. So yeah. Um, and uh, feel free to take this sound bite out of context. <laughs> Any sort of oral... Uh, Anabolic steroid, I guess you shouldn't use for more than four to six months, let alone four to six days. Well, we'd have to see what the package insert says for when those from when those drugs were actually prescribed widely. Yeah. What does it say for uh, some oxymethylone? Yeah, I'm actually not sure that'd be a good question. If anybody has a old school package insert, that'd be maybe there's a PDF, probably dig it up PDF of that somewhere. We should do a review of those. That would be fun. Yeah, we'll do that at some point. Old school anabolic steroids. Uh, next, does red yeast rice have the same anti-inflammatory properties as statins? Boy, this uh, is they're in different surprise here. Yeah, um, one, it's lovastatin, ten migs per twelve hundred migs. So it is a statin. But two, it has other compounds that 
are often pro-inflammatory or that elevate LFTs more than 10 megs of lovastatin would. Yeah, so in general, it probably does have, if you're taking 10 megs of this versus 10 megs of that, probably has some anti-inflammatory properties. You will see LDL levels go down on this, yep. but we don't recommend it because it's kind of a, a mystery dose of statin and mystery dose of other you know, compounds. To my knowledge, there's not a like trademarked or patented form of mm -hmm. red yeast rice that's sort of standardized. Yep. Um, and there's been a lot of reports of liver injury with this in mm -hmm. particular compared to your, your average supplements that you would get. Would you rather take 81 milligrams of aspirin or would you rather take 1200 milligrams of willow bark that happens to have 81 milligrams of aspirin in it and then a whole bunch of other stuff that can cause gut or liver issues? Can I get that willow bark enteric coated? Is red yeast rice enteric coated? I was talking about the aspirin, oh, which is um, enteric. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, for those that have had like bariatric surgery or high risk of ulcers, they do have uh, Vazalor, I believe, which is a liquid encapsulated aspirin, even a bit better than the enteric coated. Interesting. Yep, skips the stomach supposedly and is emptied out into the gut. Um, next, uh, another good question. And we kind of alluded to this earlier. Guys, can you expand on your reasoning for using 0.5 dutasteride with one milligram finasteride every day, which as I mentioned, I used that with twice a day saw palmetto for about one month um, a few years ago with no side effects. And um, I've had pretty good results with my hair as well. Why would you use this as opposed to 2.5 milligrams dutasteride every day? 2.5 megs reduces more DHT and it does get pricey at that dose. Unless you use Mark Cuban Pharmacy, it's really cheap if they still have it. Um, <laughs> You suggested combination could be a cheap alternative, perhaps not cheap, but um, you know, better efficacy with less potential side effects to grind out those last few hairs. Yeah, so I think this graph is a pretty good reason why you would not necessarily want to use 2.5 megs of dutasteride daily. If you look at the washout period there, uh, you have basically 12 weeks, about three months later, DHT levels are still suppressed by over 80% if you're taking 2.5 megs mm. of dutasteride. Um, we had another question about like a loading dose of dutasteride some point back and uh, specifically would recommend against that because mm -hmm. when you're first starting a medication, you're wanting to start low, go slow, make sure that you're not experiencing side effects rather than load up on something that's going to be in your system for three months if you do get side effects mm. like nipple sensitivity or... Oh. <laughs> 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 or erectile dysfunction, or like if you're dipping your toes into the water of testosterone replacement uh, or hormone replacement in general, a pellet is probably not the way to go. Yeah. And as, as I like to say, um, I don't think it's particularly humane. I, I might do that to something like a, a pet that needed it yep. for the convenience, but I, I wouldn't do that to a human. Yeah, um, that's a pretty good summary. So we don't like the 2.5 dose. Same reason why we don't like pellets. They're around for a long time. A great question. Next one is, what would be a good treatment for a 60-year-old athlete with plantar fasciitis? Hopefully not a barefoot running athlete. <laughs> um, topical BPC. It's a good question. Yeah, so is there a topical BPC-157 that would be effective? Um, I don't know that there's data on that aside from wound healing. And yeah. it's like incisional and, and so forth. Um, but this is something that we actually, I think it was published within this last 12 months. Mm -hmm. uh, PRP doesn't work for everything, but there was a trial that showed improvement in the group that got the PRP specifically for the plantar fasciitis. Yep. Um, now, in theory, the, the BPC 
may help to calm down some, some tendinopathy of any kind. Mm-hmm. But you have to kind of ask yourself, why did you develop this in the first place? Same thing with the PRP. You've got to kind yep. of go back and see, well, you know, why did this happen? What do I need to change in my warm-up or workout routine or stretching routine mm-hmm. so that it doesn't keep happening? Yeah. Plenty of VEGF and PRP. Um, BPC certainly increases VEGF signaling. It's quite good at that. That's one thing that we do know as a fact. So you could extrapolate out BPC-157 would be a reasonable addition for those that aren't at risk of tumor growth because it does go systemic a lot more than PRP. So PRP would definitely be preferred in this case. Um, But yeah, like you said, um, lifestyle interventions first, making sure you have arch support, that you're not um, walking around barefoot all day, collapsing your arch and making it worse. Yeah, all good stuff. Next, someone said, was reading a study six months after discontinuing oral dutasteride, sperm count was still lower than the initial count by 23%. Does this show the effects of dutasteride are irreversible? Um, so the short answer there is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so short answer there is no. The Yeah, this, this study I assume was done on uh, daily dutasteride. And for any commenters, we'd really very much appreciate these comments. We love doing Q&A episodes. If they happen to include a little link, we'll look at the study as well instead of just kind of assuming what it is. Um, so we love digging into new studies or whatnot. But yeah, I assume this was uh, done on the regular dose, 0.5 mg um, capsules every day. And it's no surprise that your sperm counts are still over six months later. Um, it takes two months for the entire process of spermatogenesis. So really it's a question, is there some dutasteride Um, Maybe some tissue accumulation versus what you see in the serum. Four months after a daily dose, absolutely, you would expect that. Yeah, and and the important thing is if you look at, is this going to be clinically significant for most men trying to reproduce? Mm -hmm. The answer is no. Uh, We do err on the side of caution, you know, probably six months, 12 months even being off of dutasteride, trying to just have the largest number of the healthiest sperm possible. Yep is what we would recommend, but there's plenty of guys uh, who have conceived while taking dutasteride or finasteride, no issues. That's a, that's a great point because I do very frequently say at least six months off dutasteride. When I say the at least six months, the individuals that are taking dutasteride one day per week, six months is great. If you're taking dutasteride more often, then you need more time. Yeah, yeah. And the real answer would be, you know, you could get the testing done. I mean, if you are... Again, maybe there's not a need to for the average person of a 23% drop in sperm count. If you're fairly healthy, have mm-hmm. good baseline sperm count, yep. you're not going to really know the difference six months after coming off your dutasteride. But if you are struggling with infertility, then that's a great place to look. The male should be getting a semen analysis done anyway. So if you have taken the dutasteride, it's like, oh, maybe it needs a bit more time to wash out of the tissue, mm-hmm. not just out of the serum. Yep. Uh, next question is, can you please talk more in depth on how to switch from daily finasteride to low-dose oral dutasteride once or twice a week, maintaining finasteride efficacy, but improving libido? How to avoid shedding, switching to dutasteride um, due to the time that it takes dutasteride to build up in the body? Well, I don't think that we can promise that those things will happen. So the outcome asked here is we want to maintain finasteride efficacy, improve yep. libido, Avoid serious shedding after switching. Um, the, the shedding after switching, if it does happen, I would argue that's almost a good sign that the finasteride regimen was not working that well. But daily finasteride, even at one milligram, tends to work pretty well if you look at the equivalency studies. 
Yeah. And I think you could do a simple, I don't think you would necessarily want to overlap these treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, I have done that if people are using a, a topical product and they want to try and avoid a shed. Yeah, maybe they will go ahead and overlap those by a month or so to minimize mm-hmm. the hormone fluctuation. Yep. Um, medication changes in general can cause hair shedding even when they're not necessarily hormonally mediated. So I would say to someone in this circumstance, hypothetically, and probably just go ahead and, and make the swap, start very low. Um, and then, you know, you kind of take a step back, but then you're probably going to be taking two steps forward in terms of your hair loss prevention or hair growth. Yeah. Yeah, definitely so. Um, The other point to this is, again, in the other podcast that we linked earlier, we've talked at length about the different isoenzymes of 5-alpha reductase and how at an equivalent dose of dutasteride, let's say you're decreasing your uh, serum DHT by 50%, if you compare that to the same dose of finasteride that does that, then theoretically, and if you look at the abundance of literature on PFS and finasteride syndromes and the infrequent literature on dutasteride and dutasteride syndromes. Um, Both theoretically and according to those studies, you're a lot less likely to get side effects. But I would say if you're having side effects from daily finasteride use, perhaps at five migs, it's more common at one mig, it's uh, probably 10 to 20% of individuals, then finding whatever is causing that is step one, and then uh, potential switch to dutasteride would be step two. Yeah, that's a good point. Finding out what someone is, do they value like, and how big is the decrease in libido? Is it a 10% change, mm-hmm. 90% drop? Uh, for the 90% drop, I'm saying, hey, take out the finasteride completely, figure out what's going on here, mm-hmm. see if it, the finasteride is affecting yep. this at all uh, before thinking right. about throwing in another potential confounder. Mm-hmm. My patients that have had good luck with the switch that have uh, what I'd consider moderate to severe side effects from finasteride, do best completely eliminating finasteride, starting um, an alternative regimen to control hair loss, where you know, it could be literally a combination of anything, shared decision making, and then starting very low doses of topical dutasteride, and then higher and higher doses, and then very high doses of topical dutasteride. They let that slowly go systemic, again, that slow shift. And I've seen patients with moderate to severe finasteride side effects tolerate very high dose topical dutasteride where it's going systemic and then work their way up to oral dutasteride. So it's the, uh, you know, the putting like your- like a, a gateway drug. Yeah, it's, it's like a gateway <laughs> drug, or I was gonna say very uh, gently and slowly dipping your foot into icy cold water. Yeah, that's a better analogy. Um, next we had, this was a fun comment. Um, this was our sugar tax video. Someone said, congrats, you've created a black market with the best of intentions. And this is kind of hilarious to imagine because if yes. there was a, a sugar tax where it was like, you know, let's say 25 cents per gram of sugar, yeah, that makes uh, two liter of soda, what, $50, $60, something like that. Yep. Um, people would be finding all sorts of creative ways to extract sugar from um, dates or dried mm-hmm. fruits, for example. Yep. You'd have a, a very interesting TikTok landscape of people cooking up sugary treats at home without having to pay the tax. Yeah. I do have a friend that is a economist or an economy expert, at least. It'd be fun to have him on the podcast at some point. But uh, yeah, the general overarching view here is perhaps that relative to other foods, you know, you just have your sin taxes, you have your tobacco, you have your, um, in some states, cannabinoids, you have your alcohol, and they are taxed relatively higher. 
Maybe it would be more popular if we just advocated for lower taxes on all other foods other than uh, high sugar beverages. As long as we don't dip our toes into the water of government incentives or stipends for those healthy foods. Yes. Because then in every scenario, and I can imagine the food manufacturers will raise the prices of those to reflect the subsidies. Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe we do need to have that economist come on. Yeah. Uh, look forward to that in the future. I will, I will ask him and do my best to get him to chat on the podcast. Someone said, uh, crap, now I am freaked out. My Lord, should I throw away my fish oil, <laughs> EPA, PHA, I am on TRT. Uh, depending on your age and family history, this is in relation to that, that yep. AFib risk. I, I think we talked about the risk is very, very small. It's, it's insignificant um, for most individuals. But if you're over the age of, let's say, 50, um, or if you have a family history of atrial fibrillation, you probably don't want to be pushing that EPA vector so much, unless you get a substantial benefit from it. You know, there's a number of people out there who see improvements in things like depression, and that could be a substantial benefit. Um, and maybe if you're 20 years old, that mm -hmm. risk is worth it. Um, but for other people that are taking it for general health purposes, like I think most people do, then probably going with something at least skewing towards slightly more DHA makes the most sense. Yeah. And if you're not sure what to do, then uh, I'm actually remembering this time, then check out our website and you can order uh, Omega Panel. Actually, I think we just link people to Omega Quant. If you just Google Omega Quant, um, you know, I'm not paid by them, although I'm making the money. Just Google Omega Quant. I think they even have it on Amazon. They will ship you an Omega test, see what your RBC Omegas are, and they'll tell you. Yeah, it's a great test to see if your dose is getting you to that threshold. Uh, I think above 8% is what uh, is sort of the highest level with measurable, you know, health outcome associations. Unless you're a dolphin. Unless you're a dolphin. Or Rhonda Patrick. Or Rhonda Patrick. <laughs> um 1% of the population with this HDL, this was in response to the lean mass hyperresponder um, podcast we did. And he said, it's about a ketogenic diet. Yep. Eat carnivore and your triglycerides will bonk. I suppose that means drop. Um, and uh, your HDL goes up. Yeah, we need our media guy uh, the, to translate. We need Cameron to translate uh, that. Triglyceride sure slash HDL ratio is the number one indicator for atherosclerosis risk. Wow. Even more than a cardiac catheterization? Yeah. I'm going to have to say there's better ways to see if you have plaque than a triglyceride to HDL ratio. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost so like out of bounds that I'm interested in where they would come up with that. Because you'd think, you know, clearly CCTA or at best calcium score. I mean, obviously a CCTA is going to be much better than a calcium score, but that is... Yeah, uh, that would be interesting. I mean, uh, if, if there's citations, we'd love to see those. But I, I think this is um, one of those situations where you do see some associations between typically a better HDL as a proxy for more physical activity. Yep which also lowers triglycerides, also being non-insulin resistant lowers triglycerides, but not necessarily achieving those at the expense of your atherogenic risk through ApoB is not necessarily the best way to go about doing that. Yeah, th think about um, fibrates. Uh, fibrates used to be used very frequently to lower triglycerides and their cardiovascular outcomes are well known to not be great. And think about niacin. Niacin is well known to increase HDL 
And again, cardiovascular outcomes, not great. Yeah. So there may be, uh, I think there was a paper I saw infusing uh, apolipoprotein A1 in uh, acute myocardial infarction. Mm -hmm. Company is trying to spin this out and, and get that ApoA1, which correlates very closely with HDL, yep. to get some reverse cholesterol transport acutely when someone's having a heart attack mm -hmm. and pull that out of the arteries. Yep. How well is that going to work? We don't know, um, but that's one that we're sort of following along. That would be hard to choose which particle um, to do, like just ApoA1. Maybe they or... could just infuse LDL, because I heard in the carnivore community, a high LDL should be celebrated. And is uh, good. That's, uh, infusing yeah. LDL into someone having an acute MI. I don't know about that. There's, there's also quite a bit of data about um, evidence-based care post-MI, and you have your dual antiplatelet therapy, but in addition to that, a statin, believe it or not, also has good mm. evidence. Um, so we, we can probably move along from that one, but we really appreciate the question. It's a, a good thought experiment. Despite an old rat study, none of the randomized human trials involving tens of thousands of participants over several years led to any reports of human thyroid cancer. From GLP-1. That's a pretty good statistical parameter, zero. As you know, given the benefits of diabetes management, weight management, any supposed risks far outweigh any negatives, especially if they're zero. You guys and Derek were ahead of the curve on these GLP-1, GIP glucagon drugs. So mm -hmm. good discussion and conclusion. So this, this comment is referring to GLP-1s and what they are studied for, which initially is type 2 diabetes. And I would make the case, I mean, there's always going to be exceptions though, because then you have question patients with multiple endocrine neoplasia, type 2, like the, they have a positive RET oncogene. And even if that individual is diabetic, there's just better options to improve their metabolic health. But uh, for the vast majority of individuals with diabetes or even prediabetes, um, the benefit does outweigh the negative. That being said, remember these studies are only done for, you know, at most five years, and then they'll follow them out a little bit longer. And you can certainly have increased growth hormone levels earlier in life lead to much later onset in life cancers, including thyroid cancer. We know this well from type one diabetics that have very high growth hormone levels, which you can make a case that, um, you know, uh, perhaps uh, that that strong incretin effect and that strong GLP-1 effect also raising growth hormone levels over a period of time is not a clinically insignificant effect. But like the commenter said, it's such a uh, a small effect compared to the potential benefit for the right patient. Yeah. So there's people out there that will basically say, hey, there's zero downsides to these medications. Everyone should be on them. There's people that say no one should be on them. Look at this case of someone who is taking it to lose 10 pounds and they got gastroparesis. They say no one should take these. Look how dangerous they are. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, it's not that there are zero studies showing any link to thyroid cancer. I think there is one paper showing an association, not necessarily causation, but there is an association or a correlation with GLP-1 and thyroid mm -hmm. cancer. But then there is a very similar study that found no association. So the data is, it looks to be pretty neutral, weak. Yep. but it's something that, you know, we think is worth considering. I, like I said before, we're sort of sticklers for knowing the risks and the benefits well. Yeah. It's, it's like if you're studying individuals with diabetes, diabetes is a high risk condition. That's like studying BMX bikers or skateboarders. And you want them to wear a helmet, their GLP-1 helmet. Yes, if you study enough people, that helmet will lead to skin infections. And maybe they some 
like one skateboarder out of a million gets septic from the skin infection, from the pressure, from their helmet, but it's going to help. You think of the, the angle of impact and you think, oh, if only he wouldn't, if only he wasn't wearing his helmet, <laughs> this would have been a survivable impact. But that one out of a million impact, uh, it altered the angle and he broke his neck because of the helmet. Yep. He would have been fine otherwise. Well, not fine, yep. but less injured otherwise. Yep. But I'm sure you can think of other professions which are not as high risk as BMX bike riders or skateboarders, which probably don't need that GLP-1 helmet for their activities and their risk. Like CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> probably so, because they're also metabolically healthy. That's true. <laughs> then we have uh, someone with a comment says finasteride is dangerous, especially when taken with marijuana. For gynecomastia, um, yep. I, I was that. thinking gynecomastia for, for smoke other marijuana. things. Perhaps not. I'm not sure what their context is there. That'd be interesting to know. Yep. Maybe personal experience. Um, interesting comment, but yeah, off the top of my head, gynecomastia risk would definitely be higher. Yeah, uh, hopefully these have been helpful. Please leave as many comments, whether it's YouTube or Instagram, or I don't know if you can comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but please comment with all of your experiences or follow-up questions to these questions. And we hope that we've given you some good tools, some good balanced tools to take away. Yep. Thank you for listening. May God bless you with health and happiness.